So it is my sheer delight to be hosting tonight with a dear friend in the Dharma. Uh, yes, dear friend Sagan Johnson, uh, who I would like to introduce as someone who um, I did all of my Tassahara training with, all of it. Um, sat side by side on the platform at Tassahara for quite a while. Uh, and Sagan, in addition to her residential training here at Zen Center, is currently a grad student at the Boston University School of Theology. Sagan, if there's anything you'd like to add as you segue in, thank you so much for being here. I'm really happy to be here with you. I was on mute. <laughs> Such is the technology, right? Um, thank you. Uh, dear Dharma brother, yeah, we shared time and space. And um, first, I want to say uh, hello, good evening to all of you. It is really wonderful to be here um, engaging with Sangha, a new iteration of Sangha in this uh, sort of marvelous container that we've created for each other already. It's really beautiful. And I'm feeling very held right now um, because of the, the presence of Kodo with whom I shared space and time. And also because of the invitation to be here with you all tonight that came from May, who is my Dharma sister in so many ways and with whom I shared space and time. So deep vows of gratitude to May for this invitation to be with you. Um, this talk is born of that lived experience that we shared of taking refuge in Sangha. And so I'm grateful for that. And I hope that we all really settle into refuge tonight. I'm hoping that we experience that together and that we find ways to manifest it during our zazen and that we find ways to carry it with us when we are moving throughout the world. It's my deepest intention for this talk tonight. I want to explore the possibilities for creating the conditions for healing in our communities. There's a fascicle in the Shobogenzo, written by Eihei Dogen, that's called Yoibutsu Yobutsu. And it's my favorite fascicle because it espouses an understanding of awakening that only a Buddha together with a Buddha can experience enlightenment. And I think that's beautiful and also really hard. Um, it's hard to be bound up with other people. Oftentimes we talk about practice as um, tomato, potatoes in a, in a barrel, rubbing against each other, getting clean. Um, and I also think to myself, when those potatoes are in that barrel, they get bruised 
we have the capacity to do great harm to each other um, by not listening, by taking each other for granted, by not being open to be able to see each other's full humanity, um, by defending ourselves in ways that are hurtful and harmful. And so it's my intention tonight to talk about, just really to explore really, the ways in which we are haunted by the suffering that is named and unnamed in our community. Um, and I don't mean just the Buddhist community here. So as I'm talking, I hope that you will also consider all of the communities in which you are a part of, right? This is one community that we have here tonight, even though we aren't together in physical time and space and many of us have, been, have never met, um, we are still a community of practitioners. Um, we live in families, we have friends and we have jobs and we have hobbies and we are engaging with multiple communities all the time. And for me, I think it's important to realize that when we come to the cushion, all of these come with us and we have to learn how to take good care of them. And I think we have to learn how to take good care of each other. And this is brought home for me in my daily life in that I'm now studying, as Koto said, at the Boston University School of Theology, which is a Methodist seminary. <laughs> and it is, I am around people all day long, engaged with people intellectually, personally, and in a spiritual faith way who practice a different spiritual tradition than I do. So we are always navigating shared spiritual space. I'm also studying at an institution where um, the very prolific uh, Howard Thurman taught and led Marsh Chapel for many, many years. He went on to found a congregation in San Francisco. And this is also the place where Martin Luther King Jr. was mentored by Howard Thurman. And I'm always reminded of King's encouragement to us to create beloved community, a way in which we see each other's fullness and the fullness of each other's humanity and provide space for awakening to, to occur. And I'm reminded of Howard Thurman's invitation to listen to the sound of the genuine. And he says, there is something in every one of you that waits, listens for the sound of the genuine in yourself. There is something that waits and listens for the sound of the genuine in other people. 
Now, if I hear the sound of the genuine in me, and if you hear the sound of the genuine in you, it is possible for me to go down in me and come up in you. So that when I look at myself through your eyes, having made that pilgrimage, I see in me what you see in me and the wall that separates and divides us will disappear and we will become one because the sound of the genuine makes the same music. When I think about what it means to take refuge in Sangha, I think about manifesting the capacity to be with other genuine self <laughs> and to nurture that genuine self. And I think this is not always an easy thing. And it's partly because there's a lot of suffering with which we must try to give language. And there is no easy way to articulate the depth, the nature, and the conditions of our suffering. It's partly why we sit. I, I think the invitation to sit is to prepare ourselves for that which we cannot name to arise. And this very much includes our suffering. And so I think the cre creating the conditions for healing this suffering as a community um, requires a kind of openness and a kind of vulnerability that really only happens when we enter into that contract intentionally, that relationship intentionally. And so I wanna um, read a quote. This is my favorite Dharma uh, teaching, I think. If, if, I don't know if he would call it this, but I, I carry it with me on a little card everywhere I go. And it's actually from Norman Fisher. He wrote a book called Taking Our Places, The Buddhist Path to Growing Up. So just bear with me while I read this quote. Conversation is the culmination of listening. It includes self-confidence, receptivity, give and take, even disagreement and conflict. Conversation is a dialogue, real communication and communion through our words and our presence. Founded on deep listening, deep speech, and an honest self-awareness without too much fear or judgment, conversation is a way to connect with ourselves and with each other and to enter each other's lives and help each other heal. when we experience healing, it's a release and creating the conditions for that requires us to be with each other, to listen to each other, 
to be uncomfortable and to get messy. That's a big ask. It's a big ask to be with someone in the midst of their pain. It's a big ask to let someone tell you how they've hurt you and how you've hurt them. This, I think, takes practice, but I also think it is one of our deepest, most important activities because we awaken together. And so as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, what are the things that we need to heal from? And there's a lot. <laughs> and it's personal. It's personal. It's also communal. And tonight, some of what I want to talk about is just the space, the sticky space of moral injury, the ways in which when I talk about being haunted, sometimes we don't know the harm that existed before we got to a place. Sometimes we don't know the hurt that existed before we are engaging with a person. But there has to be space for that. And also sometimes we don't know the reasons why people are coming into our space for healing. And oftentimes they aren't able to articulate it. And repairing this means finding a space within ourselves where we're open to that kind of deep discomfort it happens when we can settle and allow some space for that discomfort to arise. If we want to be good citizens of the world, then it's incumbent upon us to be intentional about recognizing the harm that happens in our spiritual communities, especially. So the framework that I find really helpful for engaging in these conversations about recognizing harm is one that I found in a book called Healing Haunted Histories, which is where the title of, of the talk came from tonight. And Kodo, I'm gonna tell you now, I don't know how much time has elapsed because <laughs> I didn't set the thing. So please give me some signals. <laughs> We're doing great. Okay. Healing Haunted Histories is a book. Um, it's called Healing Haunted Histories, A Settler Discipleship of Decolonization. And the book is intended to explore the violations that happen at the intersection of settler and indigenous worlds. 
And the idea behind the book essentially is that we are haunted by injustices that are often unnamed and unrecognized in our lives, both personally and collectively. And essentially these wounds fester until they're tended to. And the ways in which the authors offer us a framework to talk about um, being haunted, what does it mean to be haunted? And what does it mean to heal from that haunted history? They offer three ways to do this, right? To dive into exploring the hurt and the harm in our communities. The first is landlines. I guess I'll say them all. There are landlines, bloodlines, and songlines. And so I'll, I wanna just talk a little briefly about each of these. The reason I think this is important, I'll say, is because we are all sitting in space that someone else occupied. And when I think about Sangha as noble community, I think about the people who left the Sangha because the Sangha did them harm. I think about the people who are no longer in the church sanctuary because the community did them harm. And I wanna know how to care for that space. When I'm brushing the cushions, when I'm sweeping the floor of the zendo, when I'm cutting carrots in the kitchen for the community that is arriving in this present moment, I want to be always mindful of those who came before me, not just in the ways in which they created that space for me, not knowing that I was ever going to need to be there, but I also need to care for the ways in which some people left having been hurt and having not had their needs met. And as a result, are out there somewhere in search of healing. Partly, I think we also need to care for this because some people are walking in our door into the zendo in, in search of refuge from places where they experienced spiritual harm, where their souls were not cared for. And somehow we have to find a way to meet them where they are and be a refuge, which means we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be a refuge to other people, not just what am I getting from this community? I'm hurt and broken myself, so I'm going needing refuge in Sangha. But if we're all going needing refuge in Sangha, we all have to be the refuge for each other. And we have to be willing to understand what it means to be a refuge when we don't know the conditions under which someone is coming. 
And for me, these ideas of landlines, bloodlines, and songlines helps ground the part of my zazen that needs to be aware of that which has been unnamed and unspoken. So when we think of landlines, landlines are, are, as the authors write it, are immigrant family histories, whether forced or voluntary, ancestral or personal, country of origin. For me, I experience awareness of this when I think about my time at San Francisco Sun Center. Because when I first got there, there were several people who were leaving. Um, chief among them was Michael Wenger, who uh, if you've been around Zen Center for a long time, you may know his name, but he lived and helped ground that space for many, many years. And it was uncomfortable when he was leaving. And for me, I didn't know the circumstances around his leaving, right? It was necessary, needed to happen, but painful. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, I'm deeply grateful for this being who came and cared for this space, but who's leaving also makes room for me to come. There's truth in that but I need to honor what he did, right? And I think I know that there are people who left that space deeply hurt by the experience and at the time I didn't know how to care for it. I didn't know how to make sense of their suffering. But it's incumbent upon me to acknowledge it, to always be open to remembering their presence in that space because they were there and they offered generous energy. And if we go deeper, we realize that we are all on land that is haunted by the suffering of forced evacuation. All of us are on indigenous land somewhere. Nowadays, you hear people introduce themselves and uh, sort of say, I'm speaking from this land of a Native American tribe. And I feel like it's important to name that, right? I'm in Massachusetts now, I was in North Carolina, and I thought how this comes together for me is oftentimes I'm looking in my backyard and I'm thinking, who ran through these trees? Who was forced through these trees at one point? Whose story don't I know, whose pain don't I know that contributed to the cultivation of the life that I now live? The only way I heal that, the only way I repair it is if I'm paying close attention 
to the reality of the lives that were lost on the land on which I'm living and the stories of the people who went unnamed and give them life through my awareness of their suffering. The second line is bloodlines, which the authors talk about with respect to familial connections. And I think of this as an embodied story. The skin I'm in um, repairing our haunting means acknowledging the suffering in our own families. However, we choose to talk about family. I think the authors are thinking about this with respect to literal familial connections, whether adopted or natural born. I also think of this with respect to the embodied people in whom I'm around every day and being open to the ways in which if we all go back far enough, none of us knows the names, many of us, I should say, some of us do. Many of us don't know the names of the people four or five generations out. And yet their stories, especially the ones that are unresolved, stay with us in our daily lives. They show up in how we determine the conditions of our collective existence. And then finally, the authors talk about song lines, which for me is the most important part. It's the traditions of faith and spirit that offer us a sense of resilience and redemptive practice. Once we've acknowledged the pain and suffering on the land we live on, once we've acknowledged the pain and suffering that is deep in our bones, what do we do with that? And I find comfort in the fact that our practice allows us to engage with this in a deeply personal way. In community, we get up, we sit together, <laughs> We create this collective space for listening to the genuine. We get grounded and we develop and practice the capacity to hold this haunting. And then in service, one of the first things we do is chant the names of the ancestors, right? We connect ourselves to the wisdom of of compassion and awareness. We do this every day and we do this together. And then we offer the merit of our practice to each other and to unknown beings. This is an intentional practice that is necessary for us to awaken the seeds of healing for each other. We speak it into existence. We speak it into being. And then we offer it to unknown people out in the world all the time. So 
so I want to suggest that the practice of taking refuge really means identifying and being able to recognize the harm that is existing in our communities, the harm that we have unintentionally brought into the world and the harm with which we are all seeking refuge. But that the practice can ground us if we are open to being vulnerable enough to be healed. We have to want it also. We have to want to let go of the pain and we have to want for the communal spirit of healing to manifest. So finally, one of the things that I, I think is really beautiful is in the, the Jewish and Mennonite communities, they have this um, idea called the cloud of witnesses. And the cloud of witnesses is the spirit of the ancestors that is ever present and all around us. And this spirit shows up to support us. And I think that if we can tap into the cloud of witnesses, then that energy helps us be a little less haunted. The ghosts of the witnesses are saying, you can be free of this pain and suffering. So we also have a deep connection, an ethereal connection to healing. So these things that we're haunted by, these ghosts, they're not the final say. <laughs> and I find this encouraging. So in my last minute, I want to offer a short song line to encourage this awakening in all of us. I hope that you all rise with the energy and spirit of awakening and compassion. Thank you very much. <laughs>